0: Now, the the book of Psalms is is unique. Let me tell you some ways that Psalms is unique. First off, Psalms contains more chapters than any other book in the Bible. There's 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. In Psalms, you will find the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117. But in Psalms, you will also find the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. One of the ways that Psalms is unique is that most of the scriptures records God's word to his people. But in the Psalms, we actually get a record of the people's word back to God. This is mostly an expression of the heart of his people to him. And the Psalms are unique because these are all poems. And they are songs. And they were meant to be sung. And so when you read the Psalms, it's sort of like the people of God are breaking out into song. It's like you've walked onto the set of a musical. And people are just randomly singing things out. And they're singing things like uh, they're expressing their joy, but they're also expressing their pain. The Psalms is very honest. They're express, expressing their trust, their, their doubts, their faith, their longing. And this summer, for this Sunday in July and August, we're going to look at 11 different Psalms, and we're going to learn about how do we express our hearts to God. Now this morning, we're starting with Psalm 1, which maybe seems obvious to start at the beginning, but Psalm 1 actually serves as the introduction for the rest of the book. And Psalms 1 helps us understand, read, and apply the rest of the Psalms. It's sort of like the door in, it's the, it's the window, it's the, it's the lens through which we see the rest of the Psalms. And what we're going to learn this summer is that there are different types of Psalms, and, and this Psalm, Psalm 1, is what's called a wisdom Psalm. And so with wisdom psalms, you get what you also get in the book of Proverbs. You get little truths that are generally true about life. They are principles, but they are not necessarily promises. There's a difference. So these are not always guarantees of what will happen in life. These are general principles of what will happen in life. And that's what we find in Psalm 1. And the main principle in Psalm 1, and I think this will be of interest to you this morning, because I think all of us want to know the answer to this, is this. How can we be really happy? How can you and I be truly happy? Do you know how much money people would spend to be happy? Do you know how much money people have spent trying to be happy? Studies have been done. Books have been written. People want to crack the code on happiness. How can I be happy? And right here at the beginning in Psalm 1, the psalmist is saying, here's how to be truly happy. And we know that because the very first word of this psalm is the word blessed. But the best translation of that word is actually truly happy. Okay, so let's read this psalm together. It's only six verses long. Psalm 1, I'll read it to you. It's on your notes that you should have got as you came in. It's also on the screen for you. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, says, Blessed or truly happy is the man, now this applies across the genders, so the man or the woman, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits, in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, the psalmist uses a metaphor or a simile. Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Well, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff. Here's another simile, another metaphor, that the wind drives away. Therefore, because all of that is true, therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What we have in Psalm 1 and how we're going to spend our time together this morning is we have a contrast In two different ways to live, right? It's kind of obvious as I was reading. Two ways to live. And what we find in Psalms chapter one is that there are two key metaphors in this poem that are going to help us understand the difference between these two different ways to live. And the first one is this. There's the metaphor of chaff. And I'm going to call this the rootless, fruitless life. Okay? So this is one way to live. By the way, this is not the way to live truly happy. This is the rootless, fruitless life. And the key metaphor here is chaff. In verse four, it said, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, so what's chaff? What is chaff? Now, it's not something that maybe we're as familiar with today, but back when they wrote this book thousands of years ago, everybody knew what chaff was. Chaff is when uh, they would... It would be harvest time, and they would bring the wheat in, and they would take the husks and the straw, and they would and they would take the, the whole thing together, and they would begin to thresh it. I, I have a picture for you, I think. This is what it looks like, is they would begin to thresh the wheat. So they would take these pitchforks, and they would take the wheat, and they would toss it up in the air. And the reason why they were threshing it or tossing it up in the air is because what they really wanted was the kernels. And the kernels weighed more than everything else. And so as they tossed it in the air, the weightier kernels would fall to the ground where they could easily be collected afterwards. And what would happen to the chaff is the wind would blow it away. So they would always thresh wheat on a plane when it was windy so that the wind could blow the chaff away. The chaff was useless. The chaff didn't stay. The chaff had to go. The chaff was an obstacle to what they really wanted, which was the kernels. And in this psalm, the psalmist is suggesting that people who reject God's ways, who live their own way, and who reject this covenant-keeping God They're like chaff. Well, how? Well, chaff has no roots. It has no home. It has no resting place. It doesn't belong anywhere we just had the opportunity to dedicate these five beautiful children, and I was trying to do the math this morning, because we've had a, just an unbelievable explosion of, of new babies in our church, and I think in the last, we're in a two-year window, we've, we have about 12 to 15 babies born in this church, which is phenomenal. Now, I have three little girls, and I remember when my first one was, was born, everybody tries to prepare you for what it's going to be like. But you have to just experience it, right? Whether it's the actual birth, like they try to tell you. You, If you gotta watch those birthing videos, those those sort of traumatic birthing videos that are supposed to prepare you for what's going to happen. But once you're actually in the room, nothing can prepare you for what you're about to see and for for what is about to happen. And then people try to prepare you and give you wisdom on on, uh, how to take care of your children and how to make sure that they sleep and how to feed them and all that sort of stuff. And I remember a couple weeks into having your first child, you begin to wonder things like this. Am I ever going to feel rested again? Like, am I ever going to feel fully rested again in my life? And let me just say to those of you that are new parents in this room that are feeling that, I don't have an answer of hope for you because <laughs> 10 years later and three children later, the answer is no. I still do not know what it means to feel fully rested. And if I don't know what it means to feel that way, you can imagine what my poor wife Erin, how she feels. We, we're all searching uh, both naturally but also in our souls We're all searching for rest. We are Uh, a place to belong, a place to call home. In fact, if you think about most human stories or most stories that grip our hearts, at the heart of those stories is the human drive to answer questions like, where do I belong? Who do I belong with? Where is my home? And what is the purpose of my life? So we're all looking for rest. We're all looking for a place to belong. We're all looking for a place to call home. But the way of the wicked, there's no rest. Why? Well, because the world's way tells you this. Well, if you want to, if you want to experience rest, if you want to really know where you belong, if you really want to matter, if you really, if you really want to experience this, then you search for it in your performance, your ability to perform, your ability to achieve, your ability to do something significant with your life. And the problem is, is that you've learned this, right? The more that you're driven to achieve, the less rest you actually find. The more exhausted you actually are because it doesn't offer you lasting rest. Because even when you've achieved one goal, there's another goal to achieve. And even when you think you're good at this, someone comes along who's better than you at it. And now you have to prove that you're better than them. This week, I was listening to an interview of a, with a man named Bob Bowman, Uh, He's a swimming coach at Arizona State University. He's coached many Olympians, most famously Michael Phelps. Um, So you probably know that name. And he's coached Michael Phelps since he was uh, a young teenager, his entire life. And during the interview, Bob Bowman, who coaches some of the best athletes in the world towards accomplishing some of the most incredible achievements, like eight gold medals at a single Olympics... He said this, he said, you know, when I, when I look at these people and I talk to these people, every single one of them thinks that there is some sort of magical achievement out there that once they get it, they're going to be good. Once they achieve it, they're going to feel good about themselves. They're going to be satisfied. What he was saying is they're going to be at rest. But, then he re- but this is what he said. He's like, I've realized it doesn't exist. There's no achievement in this world that's going to finally put your heart at rest. And yet the way of the wicked says keep achieving, keep proving yourself, keep accomplishing things, keep doing things, keep putting more badges on your chest and putting more trophies on your shelf. And it doesn't give us rest. The world's wisdom also says, well, live for yourself, live for yourself and maybe also live for the people who are in your tribe, but live for yourself and get yours. But then when you do that, you lead a life or you live a life that doesn't help other people flourish. In other words, you know what chaff doesn't do? It doesn't bear fruit. Chaff can't bear fruit. And when our lives are not rooted in something beyond our pursuit of meaning and purpose and selfish endeavors, we're never gonna bear fruit. We're never gonna help other people flourish. Now, how does somebody get to the point where they're on this path, where they're the chaff? What's said in verse one? Did you notice this? It said, truly happy is the man Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist is sort of giving us the path towards wickedness, but he's kind of doing it in a reverse way. He's saying, You're happy if you don't do this, but let's look at what they actually are not supposed to do. It says, There's a progression of thought here. Did you notice that? Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. And each of these three kind of represents something different. Now, In Hebrew poetry, there is a technique they use called parallelism, where they say lines over and over that sort of mean the same thing. They're just said slightly different, and they're actually not meant to be interpreted individually. They're sort of meant to be interpreted as a one thought. However, the psalmist doesn't give us two lines here. He gives us three lines. And the first two, that's parallelism. The idea of counsel of the wicked and the way of the sinners, those sort of are the same ideas, same thoughts, same sort of level of wickedness. But then he throws a third one in, which is another level, sit in the seat of scoffers. And there's many times in scriptures where scoffers are identified as people who have contempt in their heart towards others, towards God, who mock God, who mock his ways. And the psalmist is saying this is a whole other level of lostness and wickedness. And when you look at these three phrases, walks, stands, sits, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to recognize the progression, right? Walking by, standing still, taking a seat. There is this progression that the psalmist is saying and the first one is the idea that first you begin to think the way the world thinks it's thinking then the second one is then you begin to behave the way they behave it's your approach to life and then the last one when you sit in the seat of a scoffer when you're sitting in a seat that on the back says seat of a scoffer guess who you are when you're sitting in it you're the scoffer and the final step is belonging so you go from thinking to behaving, to belonging, so this is how it starts. It doesn't start with your identity being wicked, it starts with you beginning to think the way that other people think. Oh boy, that looks good, I, I think that looks good, I think I would like that, that I think that, um, that seems to make sense, that sounds good, and then you move into behavior. Well, this feels good, and this makes me happy, and this satisfies me for a season, and then eventually it becomes your very identity. Well, this is who I am, this is my home, this is where I rest, and now you're lost so what's the outcome? In verse five, it says, here's the outcome. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Well, what does this mean? The phrase to stand in the judgment means that this person will not be given the floor or provided a forum in which to speak his or her peace. And the phrase sinners in the congregation of the righteous means that there's no place for you there. So, so here's a sort of rhymey, easy way to remember the outcome. The outcome is this. When you walk this wicked way, when you live this life, when you are chaff, number one, you have no case for yourself. And number two, there's no place for yourself. You have no case. You have no case to make. And what what the psalmist is saying, if you live this way, you will not be able to stand before God someday and defend yourself. You will not have a case, and God himself will not defend you, which by the way, not to get to the end of the message, is our only hope. Our only hope is not that we've got a good defense. Our only hope is that God will defend us, that God will speak for us. Not that we've lived a good, moral, well-behaved life, but that we've trusted in Jesus and his life on our behalf. But what the psalmist is saying here, if you live this way, you have no case for yourself, but you also have no place for yourself. You don't belong. You'll find no rest. This is the rootless, fruitless life. Thankfully, there's another life in this psalm we're gonna call this one the rooted fruitful life. I thought rooted fruited would, would, would sound nice, but it doesn't make any sense. The rooted, fruitful life. And here we get a different metaphor. So we go from the chaff to you remember what the righteous were like? This is actually not a metaphor, it's sorry, English teachers, I know it's a simile because the word like is in there, but there's a simile. The the righteous is like a tree. This is the other metaphor, a tree, verse 3, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he or she does, he or she prospers. This is the image of a tree in a very dry climate. These, these psalms were written in the Middle East where, where they were located. It was a desert climate and everybody knew trees only grow near rivers. They only grow where there's a water supply, and so this tree is growing in a dry climate because it's rooted near a constant supply of water, and the tree receives water through its roots. Now, in 2009, some uh, researchers at Virginia Tech did a study on on little trees, trying to understand uh, trees and their root systems, and I thought this was interesting they learned that the ratio of the root radius, in other words, the ratio of how far the roots spread to the actual diameter of the trunk was about 38 to one. So for example, to make this make more sense, a six inch tree, imagine a little six inch tree would have roots underneath the ground that spread out as far as 19 feet. Six inch tree, 19 feet, roots, roots beneath the surface, roots you don't see. Roots, here's one of the things that roots do. Roots dig in. They provide stability and they provide strength. They hold the tree up. They do. And listen, the fact that you and I need to be planted by waters and we need to have deep roots, as exciting as that sounds, you know what that means? It means there's going to be times in life where you're going to need those deep roots. You're going to need them because you heard, what was the young man who spoke this morning? What was his name? John, you heard John say it. He preached it before I could. You heard him say it this morning. When you start following Christ, life doesn't automatically get easy. In fact, in a lot of ways, it becomes more challenging because you come more in touch with the issues in your heart and the Spirit is working on you in new ways. And there are challenges around you because not everybody likes that you're living this way, right? So being this tree in this psalm doesn't mean that life will always go our way. And here's what else it doesn't mean. It also doesn't mean that you're always gonna feel strong or look strong what it means is your roots are in the right place. That's what it means. In fact, there's a phrase in there that said the leaf doesn't wither. And the psalmist isn't saying that the leaf never withers, as if the tree is uh, unaffected by the seasons of the year. That's not what it means at all. It means that the leaf won't wither because of a drought, but your leaves still die in certain seasons. Right? We go. We know this here. Uh, I'm not trying to ruin summer for you, but eventually fall comes, and then eventually winter comes and the leaf withers and dies. That's the seasons of life. And the truth is is that even if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you put your trust in him, there's going to be seasons where your leaf is going to wither because you're going to be in a difficult season. But your roots can hold you strong. Roots hold everything uh, in place while while things above the ground may waver. Uh, I was studying this because palm trees are an interesting example of this. Uh, Palm trees have these fibrous roots that... They don't only fan out in um, great distances, but they also go down deep. In fact, palm tree roots can go down as far as like the tectonic plates. Whatever that means, but I think that's deep. Uh, and so uh, it sounds impressive, right? So all of this combines to give the palm tree a very solid base in the ground and a very supple trunk that will bend in the wind without breaking. Now, I want you to see this picture because this is what palm trees look like in storms. And maybe as you're looking at this, you can relate to this. You can say, you know what? This, this is me sometimes, right? This is me in life, bending, not breaking, and what's holding it in place is its deep roots. Now, this is what we want to look like. Go to the next picture. Like, this is, a, you know, this is who we want to be, right? This is our lives. We're, we're, it's a beautiful day. We're standing up straight. The sun is shining. But whether it's this picture or the other picture, you know what? They both have the same roots. And sometimes we look at people who are maybe struggling, bending, in a storm, and we maybe judge them. And we maybe think, well, if you just had more faith, You would look like this. But you know what? This tree, go to the other one. This tree and this tree, they got the same roots. They have the exact same roots, but they're in a different season. They're in a different experience. One looks strong, one looks on the verge of breaking. And here's the truth that we learn, not to press this metaphor too much, but I think this is true from this text. To survive the storms of life, you have to have deep roots. To survive the storm, you have to have deep roots. So roots help us stand up. But roots also do something else. They get to you what you need to live and to be fruitful. The roots are the ones that go after the water that the tree needs to live and to be fruitful. And, you know, many times in our lives, we're like, I wish I was more godly. I wish I had more character. I wish I was more pace, patient in traffic. I wish I wasn't so frustrated by this family member or this person at work. I wish I could be this way. What you're saying is, I wish there was more fruit in my life. And the psalmist is saying it starts with the roots in your life. It's roots. Then fruits, you can't have fruit without having real roots because roots is what brings the water, so to speak, into your system that you can then turn into fruit. Now fruit, a couple things about fruit. First off, producing fruit takes work on the behalf of the tree. I don't mean like you ever see works, or I don't mean that you ever see trees like sweating and grunting, like trying to push out fruit, like you know, really striving. They're just kind of being, well, here's what I mean. Trees don't just take water and channel it and produce more water. Trees take water, and then there's a process. There's an inner working that converts that water into fruit. And it's true with you and me, too. We take what God gives us through spiritual disciplines and through his grace, but there's an inner work that we do to turn it from just water into fruit. Fruit takes work. Now, what does that look like for you? For some of us, it's the spiritual disciplines of prayer, what does our time with God look like? How, are, how intentional are we in designating time in our lives to say, God, I'm gonna, I want to root into you because the water that we need is the water that's in Christ. He's the living water. Prayer. How about opening up our, our, our Bibles and reading our scriptures and, and going to the scriptures and saying, God, I need your truth and giving and serving and showing up and being rooted. I think part of being rooted is being rooted in a church, being rooted in a community, these spiritual rhythms. So fruit takes work. Another thing that's true about fruit is that fruit is for others. You've never seen a tree consume its own fruit. doesn't do it. Apple trees don't like apples. They don't eat them, I guess, right? Trees do not consume their own fruit. Fruit is for others. A tree bears fruit, not for itself, but for others. And this is what it means. When the faithful prosper, when the faithful flourish, it's not for you. It's for others. It's never just for you. God never just blesses you for yourself. You are blessed to be a blessing. And when we don't give it away, and when we don't recognize the fruit of my life is to bless and encourage and strengthen others, then it's a wasting of God's grace at work in our lives. We get to spend our lives, how are you uh, intentionally rescheduling your week and thinking through your schedule to say, how am I intentionally spending time pouring my life into others? It, it should be more than just, thank God for those of you that serve on Sunday mornings and teach, and we have 30, 40 children over there being taught right now by wonderful adult workers, thank God for that, and the people who serve in the nursery and do different things. But please don't let that be the limit of your strengthening of the body. Don't let that be the ceiling on, or the parameters within which you say, I'm gonna live for other people. Let every moment of your life and every area of your life, wherever you go, wherever God gives you influence, say, I wanna strengthen others, I wanna add value, I wanna give life, if I got roots, I got fruit, and I wanna give fruit to others. Now, how does someone get to this life? How does someone get here? And the psalmist tells us in verse two, it says his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. Let me just make a couple of comments that we're gonna come to a close. Two things we do to get on this path of the rooted, fruitful life. We have to delight in God's law and we have to meditate on it day and night. Let's talk about the first one, delight. Now, when it says delight in the law of the Lord, what does the law of the Lord mean? Well, in this context, it probably was referring to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, but you can also read it really broader. This is not just the Torah. This is any command that God gives, and for us today, it's really the scriptures. It's all of the scriptures, and we delight. Now, what does that word delight mean? How do you know that you delight in something? I know that when I delight in something, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, sometimes when I'm trying to explain to somebody about the last great meal I had, as I'm telling them about it, my mouth is watering, and I'm having a, I'm having a hard time talking because I delight in that thing. So delighting in something means it, it stirs us, it moves us, and delight here means this is a picture of really a man who is in love with a woman or, or vice versa, and he, he delights in her. He yearns to spend time with her, and when he is with her, he drinks in every word she speaks. Remember those first couple dates? Like everything they say is brilliant. Everything they say you agree with. What, did that, what happened to that? Right? Everything. Everything's a, everything's amazing. Everything's wonderful. And you just like you go home. You're like, this is the most interesting person in the world. They don't say a single boring thing. That's the picture here. Delighting in it. Being intoxicated with the beauty. This is the relationship between a godly person and the Word of God. Now, this is a hard self-evaluation question, but ask yourself, do I delight in the scriptures? Do I yearn for it? When I am with it, do I drink in every word it speaks? Am I, so to speak, intoxicated with its beauty and with its truth? Delight in the law. Now, that phrase, delight in the law, maybe sounds like an oxymoron to you because who delights in laws? I used to run a summer camp for a few hundred teenagers. And once they were there, the first thing we'd do is we'd sit them in a room and we'd do what was called orientation, which is basically, here's the rules. And we would say to them, if you just sit and listen, we're going to get through this quicker. The quieter you are, the quicker we'll get through this, right? We had to sort of entice them to listen, because who wants to listen to rules? Now, usually they're pretty good. They listen. Every now and then we have to stop and ask them to listen again. But never in my seven years of running this camp, never as I was sharing the rules did they break out into applause, None of them were leaning on the edge of their seats and just sort of in love. No one said, could you say that again? Say it slower this time, right? <laughs> like, that's so wonderful. I just want to whisper that into my ear. Like, I want to, I want. how do we delight in laws? Now, the, the scriptures say we have to delight in the law of God. And the law of God inc- includes, here's how you should live your life. And nobody wants to be told how to live their life. So how do we fall in love with the rules? Well, really quickly, it's how we see the person who's giving the rules, And we have to see the rule giver as four things. Number one, we have to see the rule giver as a caring designer. God is the creator. He is the designer. This is what it means, like it or not. He actually does know the best way for you to live. He does actually know your path to happiness. He's the designer. Secondly, we see the rule giver as the model. Jesus didn't just say, do this. He did it. He showed us what it looks like, how to live a life perfectly surrendered to God. Number three, this is maybe the most important, you have to see that the rule giver also is the rule keeper. In other words, he's your substitute. So God didn't just say, keep the rules. He said, I'm sending my son to keep the rules for you because by the way, you're terrible at keeping rules. We're all terrible at keeping rules. Jesus is the only one who lived the perfectly righteous life, who never listened to the way, the advice of the wicked, who never walked, who never stood, who never sat in the seat of scoffers. And then so the rule giver is a designer. He's a model. He's a substitute. And here's the other way we got to see the rule giver as a source. See, here's a very important truth. Whatever God requires of you, he also provides for you. Anything God says you give to me, he first gave it to you. He's the source. He gives you grace. He gives you more grace. And he also sent his spirit to dwell within you, to give you power to obey. So that's what it means, delight. And then lastly this morning, what does it mean to meditate? Now, when we hear meditate... Maybe we think of uh, practices of Hinduism and Buddhism and this sort of like uh, getting in touch with your inner divinity, uh, clearing your mind. This is not what it means here. The, to meditate in the Hebrew faith uh, meant this. It was an active pondering. It's, it's actually a funny little word. It sort of describes somebody who, who putters around all day muttering stuff under their breath. Like, you know... Some of you, if you talk to yourself too much, they're going to call somebody on you, right? But, but it's this sort of idea of like, talk to yourself, mutter to yourself all day long, sort of remind yourself day and night in every situation. And here's what the psalmist is saying. If you're going to be rooted, if you're going to walk the path of happiness, if you're going to walk the path of the righteous, you're going to have to get into the rhythm of talking to yourself all the time and reminding yourself the goodness of God and who he is. Martin Lloyd Jones, a famous preacher, said this one time Most of the unhappiness in my life and your life is because we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. And the psalmist here is saying meditating upon the law means you gotta talk to yourself. But what do we say to ourselves? I was listening to an interview earlier this week with a man named Varun Sony. He's a doctor, he's a dean of religious life at the University of Southern California. He's also a practicing Hindu. And he's saying that when people try to answer the question, why are you the way you are? You know, as a parent, many times you find yourself probably saying that to your children. Why are you that way? And then usually you blame your spouse for why they're that way. But why are you the way that you are? Why do you live that way? Uh, there's really two competing answers, and they're actually um, complementary. But the biologist would say it's nature. And the sociologist would say it's nurture. Is it nature? Or is it nurture? And it's both. But this guy, Varun Sony, this dean of religious life at USC said, there's another word, and the word is narrative. So there's nature, your DNA, your makeup, your personality, who you are. There's nurture. We heard about sort of some of the negative effects of, of growing up in an environment that's not healthy. There's nurture. That affects who we become and who we are. But then he said, we underestimate narrative. Now, what's narrative? Narrative is simply this, the story you tell yourself The story you tell yourself to make sense of life. The story you tell yourself to explain why things happen the way they happen. And all of us are telling ourselves stories all the time. So what do we do as Christians? We tell ourselves a better story. We tell ourselves the truest story. We tell ourselves the beautiful story. And it's called the gospel. Over and over, we tell ourselves, I was a sinner, lost in my sin, with no way to save myself or make myself right. I was on the wicked path. I was the chaff blown by the wind. But God, you had mercy on me. You sent your son to live for me and to die for me. And that's the story we have to mutter to ourselves all day long. Otherwise, we'll start telling ourselves other stories. And we'll start thinking like the wicked, behaving like the wicked, becoming the wicked. And what's the outcome in verse six? It says, the Lord last thing the Lord knows the way the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish this idea that the Lord knows the way of the righteous this is not like a cognitive knowledge this is not like he knows because God knows everything he knows it all this word knows here means that he knows listen to this he knows you with two things he knows you with affection and he knows you with approval now does that set your heart at rest at all that God can know you with deep affections and with real approval? You know, we walk in the counsel of the wicked. We stand in the way of sinners. We sit in the seat of scoffers. But Jesus looks at us with, God looks at us with affection and approval. Why? Because of Jesus. Now, you remember how earlier we said the wicked, there's no case for them and there's no place for them? Well, because of Jesus, you know what's true? There's a case for you. And there's a place for you. And the case for you is this. Jesus is your defender. He's your high priest. He goes before you. And he says, I know they didn't get it right. I know they didn't get it right. But I got it right. I came as a substitute and I got it right. And so don't judge them based on their work, Judge them based on my work, on my life, because they've placed their faith and trust in me. They're not trusting in themselves anymore. They're trusting in me. And so Jesus is your great defender. He stands before in the courtroom of heaven as your defender saying, I can make a case for this person, not based on who they are, but based on who I am. But also that means there's a place for you. There's a place you belong. There's an eternal place for you. And if you were to breathe your last, there is a place in heaven for you because of Jesus. And this is true happiness. This is true happiness. Not getting your stuff, not getting your way, but knowing that God knows you with affection and approval. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work in our hearts this morning, change us, make us new. Show us the path that we're on We can either walk according to the counsel of the wicked or we can delight in your law. There's not a third way. These two ways part and they part into eternity, never to join again. Help us, God, to trust in you.